Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown, and today we'll be talking about democratizing Texas politics, race, identity, and Mexican-American empowerment, 1945 to 2002. The author of this book is Benjamin Marquez. Ben, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's such an interesting book. And before we get to it, maybe you could tell us just a little bit about yourself, uh, what your background is. And uh, where you where you've been and where you are now? Well, right now I'm a uh, professor of political science um, at the University of Wisconsin, and I'm currently uh, the director. I'm also the director of the Chicano Latino Studies program here. Uh, but I am not from the Midwest. Uh, I was born in El Paso, Texas, many years ago. I got my uh, BA at the University of Texas at El Paso. But interestingly, I came here to the University of Wisconsin to get my master's and my Ph.D. Uh, I've been at a number of institutions uh, uh, where I've had uh, where I've had uh, where I've worked, where I've uh, taught and done research. I I, uh, I taught for a year at San Jose State University. I taught for a couple of years at the uh, University of Kansas. I was uh, I was also a professor for several years at the University of Utah, and then in 1991 I came back to my old uh, alma mater um, uh, in the Department of Political Science uh, at the University of Wisconsin, and I've I've been here I've been here ever since. And I um, yeah, well, I'm sorry. Go I ahead. was just going to say yeah, I was just going to say we've we've had the real good fortune over the last six months or so to have a number of, of uh, faculty members at University of Wisconsin many talking about similar similar subjects so there's clearly some good stuff going on in Madison right now oh i think so this is a this is a great university and uh, and there are a lot of uh, very creative uh and uh, and innovative people here so it's it's a real joy to work at this institution yeah and you've produced a really interesting book um partially uh, a history of uh, of the state um a really interesting political history you start your book in and around 1945 I wonder if you would briefly describe what the state of Texas looked like in the 1940s. Uh, What were its demographics? Um, How similar was the state compared to today? Well, that's that's one of the things that I've uh, I, I should, guess I should clarify that I uh, that the things that I write about are things that I've seen in my own life, and that I'm I've been very curious about understanding more completely. Uh, I was growing up in Texas in the 1950s and 60s, and I saw many of the changes that I talk about in my book take place before my very eyes, and I, I, I knew something important was happening, but of course, you know, as a kid, as an adolescent, uh, even a young adult, it really wasn't clear to me what, what it was exactly that was going on. And um, 
And for example, the, the, the election of some of the first Mexican Americans to the state legislature, uh, the election of more and more, uh, Mexican Americans to local, uh, uh, local and, uh, and in one case, national, uh, national office. Uh, I, I was always curious uh, about, about this phenomena. And later I, uh, as I, uh, as I became an academic, you know, I, I wondered how can this be explained in larger terms? So I, um, I started um I started um my my research and um and and many people see the uh, the post World War II period uh as a very significant time in our in our country's history. Uh I picked that time as my starting point although I could have gone back much much earlier than that. I thought this was a good time to uh, uh to look and uh, and try to understand the changes that had taken place. Uh if you look at Texas politics in the 19 uh, the mid 1940s right after World War II uh, one of the things that uh, the characterized it was uh, was its strict racial um, uh, racial demarcation lines. Uh, uh, Mexican Americans, African Americans were clearly marginalized, uh, and in the case of African Americans, they were uh, they were segregated uh, by law. Uh, Mexican Americans were segregated uh, uh, not by law but by social custom, uh, and uh, and sometimes uh, uh, enforced uh, enforced by violence uh, and uh, and yet uh, and uh, by the uh, by the mid 1970s and then through the 80s uh, the, the state had begun to change, uh, and, and the topic of my book is, is electoral change. How did, the, how did Texas change uh, in terms of electoral politics and representation? So in 1945, uh, the state's electoral politics reflected these social realities. Uh, the electoral system was dominated by Southern Democrats. It was a, it was an all-white, very conservative, uh, exclusive uh, electoral system, and uh, and there was virtually no participation and no effective participation by racial and ethnic minorities. And by the 1970s, that had changed. Uh, we had uh, not a one-party, a white one-party system in Texas, but we actually had a competitive two-party system that was racially integrated. <laughs> I found that fascinating. Uh, I, I, I do find it fascinating. That's why I wanted to, to understand uh, uh, what had gone on. And then by the 2000s, uh, we had a... Uh, uh, we had, uh, uh, we had a racially integrated two-party system dominated by the Republican Party, uh, in which uh, in which it, in which the Republican Party uh, was was partially integrated itself. Uh, so, you know, how did this happen? I wanted to know how in the world did this happen? Uh, who did it? You know, who were the people that did it? Uh, uh, did it matter who did it? I think it, I think it did. Uh, and what were the implications of this change for racial power and and racial representation? So so that that um, my questions expanded uh, as I got older and and learned a little bit more about uh, about uh, politics and uh, and social change. Yeah, and, and one of the most um interesting figures in your book, of which there are many, is, is Henry B. Gonzalez. So who was Gonzalez, um, and what was his vision for empowering Mexican-Americans in Texas politics? I found Henry B. Gonzalez to be one of the most fascinating players in Texas politics for many years. And, and I should remind your listeners that Henry B. Gonzalez was active 
uh, not just in the post-Pearl War War II period, actually prior to that. Before becoming a congressman in 1961, he was on the San Antonio City Council. And I think it's important to remember that, uh, not to celebrate the man himself, but to understand uh, the way that he looked at politics and understood racial representation. Um, uh, San Antonio currently has a very successful Mexican-American mayor, uh, but uh, and, and some of the things that he believes in are, are considered quite controversial. Uh, but his beliefs, his views, and his attitudes actually go back long, long before that, and even, even before Henry B. Gonzalez. Uh, and I was one of the first scholars to have a look at his collected papers at the Center for American History uh, in, um, at the University of Texas at Austin. And what I found really interesting about Henry B. Gonzalez was that he was both a, uh, uh, a Cold War liberal uh, he was uh, he was he was very liberal when it came to domestic policies. Very tough when it came to international policy. Uh, a strong supporter of the military. He was also uh, a strong advocate uh, uh, for uh, for the Mexican American people. Uh, he wanted uh, he fought and actually he fought for uh, uh, he fought for equal rights for everyone. Uh, he would he led a filibuster in uh, in 1948, the first year that he was a senator against uh, against uh, the segregation bills proposed by the uh, by the uh, uh, by the Texas governor who wanted to fight you know the uh, oh, excuse me this was uh, this was 19 this, this was the mid 1950s who were who were doing everything they could to uh, to prevent the implementation of uh, of the Brown v Board uh, uh, Board uh, uh, Supreme Court decision they did everything they wanted to do to fight that uh, they could to fight the the, uh, the desegregation orders uh, following that uh, following that case so he is an old time liberal he understood history he understood where racial and ethnic Disadvantages and inequalities were rooted, um, but yet he was a strong advocate of participating uh, within the Democratic Party, and that meant participating within the Texas Democratic Party when it was still a largely uh, uh, racist and exclusionary political party. Uh, why do that? Well, he said this was really the only route uh, for uh, uh, for change. As to use the Democratic Party as a vehicle, uh, does that mean that you have to form alliances with people that you don't particularly like or who don't have your interests at heart? Uh, his answer was yes, but uh, but give me an alternative. That was always his question. And during the 1960s, um, I, I, I devote quite a bit of space to to, to this period. Uh, he was attacked for being a um, for being a sellout, and his question was always, you know. What would you suggest? What's your alternative? What's what's realistic? Uh, so I, I found him really fascinating in that way, and and he's you know, of course he had his cantankerous personality. Uh, um, so there was very very many aspects to him as a person that I that I just was fascinated by. But as a political player, he articulated the vision of creating a liberal multiracial coalition uh, dedicated to uh, to creating uh, uh, to creating change through incremental means. I mean, that's that he, he fully endorsed that. Yeah, and his um, his vision differed from some of his contemporaries. I wonder if you could describe who he most often conflicted with. Um, and and what other visions were out there for advancing the interests of Mexican Americans 
during the 1950s and, and up through the 1960s? Who were his primary uh, adversaries during this time period? Well, there's a number of individuals that were there. But, but I like to look at these debates as long-standing uh, and, and apart from the individuals who articulate them. Um, uh, his nemesis during the 50s and the 60s was Albert Pena. Uh, and, but he articulated a vision uh, that uh, continued through the 1960s and 70s and, and has not disappeared today. Uh, basically, Albert Pena did not trust the Democratic Party. And, and ironically, uh, uh, Henry Gonzalez did not have a lot of faith in the state Democratic Party, but he thought that, uh, that eventually the National Party would change the state party. But, um, but those that oppose the vision of people like Henry B. Gonzalez and a list of others that I mentioned uh, in the book believed that, that there needed to be a stronger nexus, actually a, a, not a stronger nexus, but there needed to be organizing that was indistinguishable uh, from, from that of party politics. In other words, they believed that, that that party, Democratic Party advocates, and this is what they were, should also be community advocates as well. So they should be act, uh, activists in both realms, and there should be there should be no separation. In other words, in order to hold the uh, uh, the Democratic Party accountable to Mexican Americans, you should also be a community activist. And um, ironically. When the race line was broken eventually in the Democratic Party, and this was a very complicated process, that division began to widen. Uh, and, uh, and individuals who were long-time committed party activists or professional politicians came, came to win out. Uh, but the, um, the critique was that the Democratic Party would never be uh, would never be responsive to to Mexican Americans. Would always offer paltry compromises. Uh, uh, those that would be ineffective in, in rooting out racism, rooting out socioeconomic inequalities, and uh, and again, uh, Henry Gonzalez or, or individuals who of like mind would turn around and say, well. Give us another way. Give us a realistic alternative. So that's a long-standing debate, and and at that time, Albert Pena was the leading voice in opposition to Henry B. Gonzalez. Uh, but you could uh, you could find individuals like that uh, today. Yeah, the, you know, the, I think one of the real interesting uh, aspects of the book, um, reading about this time period from where we are now, with with quite weakened particularly at the state and local level, weakened uh, political parties, um, you have to sort of return back to a time period where this, this argument that, that Gonzalez makes, which is, you know, if, as you've mentioned several times, uh, what is the other alternative? Um, is, is, it's a very different, such a different time period. Um, I, on page 76, and throughout the book, you have some excellent, excellent photographs. Um, but on, on page 76, you have a great photograph of several leaders with Lyndon Johnson at the White House. I wonder if you could describe a little bit what the relationship was of the Mexican-American leaders with national figures like John Kennedy and then later Johnson. Well, one of the, they were one of the first activists who actually had real contact with national leaders. And um, and you have to put yourself in their shoes. This was this was a first to actually visit the White House, to actually be photographed with the president was uh, was not a routine matter. It's not something that uh, that people do today. Uh, uh, I'm sure there are 
thousands and thousands of photographs uh, taken today of minority political activists with President Obama and other presidents. It's it's become routine. But this this was a breakthrough, and this was a uh, uh, this was a uh, a first. So so they were. They were very proud uh, of, uh, of this accomplishment because they felt they accomplished it for their people. They thought this was a racial breakthrough. But at the same time, they were Democratic Party activists. Uh, and they presented themselves not only as a uh, representatives of a population that were that were in need, and they appealed to, uh, to Johnson and Kennedy's uh, sense of social justice, but also a group that was very important to the Democratic Party's coalition. And that's what they that's what they emphasized. They emphasized their importance in winning elections. And they would point to the 1960 presidential election. They would say, "Look, uh, uh, how is it that uh, uh, that uh, that Johnson and Kennedy won the 1960 election? Well, part of it was that uh, that Johnson was on Lyndon Bain Johnson was on the Democratic Party was it, was the vice presidential candidate. But the other was that uh, uh, that community activism uh, was translated into Democratic Party." Party activism, uh, you know, the Viva Kennedy Clubs. This was a network of uh, of Mexican American political activists who uh, who worked to get the vote out, the Mexican American vote out for uh, uh, for the Kennedy Johnson ticket. But they they were Democratic Party activists, so so it was uh, it was no it was not hard for them to take off one hat and put on another. Uh, but really, their hearts uh, they wanted to break through. These were individuals who wanted to be regular uh, and respected participants in the Democratic Party, and they were left out. Uh, so, so when they talked to Johnson, when they talked to Kennedy, when they talked to any Democrat, any Anglo Democratic Party official, they were speaking as members of this coalition because uh, uh, because they understood the limits of uh, of, uh, of racial group agitation in electoral politics. They said this is the way you move the polity, and you have to work with others. You have to find a common ground, and you do that by uh, uh, by finding common interests. One of the nice things about the book is you, you know, this is a story about a, about a state and about a particular part of a state, but, but it, it can be generalized to so many other situations and, and many of the dynamics that are going on uh, happen in, in, in other communities and other parts of, of the country. And, and, and one of the, the dynamics that, that you, you, you um, uh, uh, talk about a lot in the book is the emergence of these organizations. And so an organization called the Mexican American Youth Organization emerged in the late 1960s. I wonder if you talk a little bit about how politics changed as we move from the 1960s to the 1970s and beyond and how some organizations like the Mexican American Youth Organization um, sort of changed the dynamics of, of Texas politics from uh, what you describe earlier to the, the 70s and, and into the 80s? Well, as, as you know, explaining social change is one of the most difficult things um, that, we, uh, that we do. It's really hard to understand how change comes about. And uh, as, I, as I try to do in the book, I point out that a lot of things came together uh, uh, to, to bring about change. But, uh, but you're referring to some of the radical nationalist organizations and leaders of the 1960s and 70s, and uh, you know, groups like La Raza Unida Party, uh, uh, we're getting a lot of media attention. And, and I was in Texas at the time, and 
and I was I was just fascinated by the groups. In fact, I, I participated uh, in with with some of these groups, and we felt that we were changing state politics because um, because as as we were active, we saw the state changing, and and we concluded that well, you know, we had an awful lot to do with that. Um, and but uh, but even though the um, um, the 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 radicals the nationalists of the 1960s and 70s got a lot of media attention and boy you go to go to the archives that I went to and they're just chock full of these groups uh, organizing what i found was that the groundwork had already been laid in the 1940s and, and even before that? That uh, that people like Henry B. Gonzalez and and others uh, that I that I mentioned were had been hard at work for a very long time, uh, creating a space for for minority voices and the, the Texas political party system. So they were already there. Uh, and in fact, they were distressed when they uh, when they heard these young radicals. Uh, and they saw them actually step into the electoral realm because they believed that they were upsetting a lot of their uh, their patient uh, uh, their hard patient work. On the other hand, this was also a um, an impetus for the Democratic Party to change and to integrate its ranks. So it could no longer it could no longer stand guilty of the charge of racial exclusionism. So in other words, um, uh, at the time when their work began to bear fruit. Radicals were critiquing uh, every aspect of American society, including the party system, uh, and uh, and Anglo. Uh, as a result, Anglo political leaders were given a choice. Well, you know, you know, you either speed up the change of uh, the pace of integration, or you have to deal uh, with the with the withering critiques of uh, of these young uh, these young radicals. So they did play a role, but. Um, but I documented so so many years of very hard and very patient work uh, among Mexican American Democrats, uh, Democratic Party activists, to integrate the party, to make it more responsive, to make it more representative. And their fruit, their 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 work began to bear fruit uh, just at the time uh, at the rise of the uh, uh, of the of the Chicano movement. So so many uh, many popular observers attribute that that radicalism and that activism uh, uh, with uh, with changing the party, uh, and it and it played a role. But the lion's share of the credit goes to uh, to people like Gonzalez and others who were patiently working uh, working the long hours to change the Democratic Party and to make it uh, and to make it more inclusive. Now, your book takes us up through two thousand two, but I wonder if you would um, sort of indulge us in 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 the the, the current state of, of Texas politics. How democratic, uh, either small D or big D. Is Texas politics today? Uh, could you, you know, sort of put put the book into a little bit of, uh, you know, current politics context? Uh, where do we stand today when we look at the uh, how democratized politics is in Texas? Well, I chose the title. I mean, I called it "Democratizing Texas Politics." You know, with uh, <laughs> deliberately. I mean, it's it's, it's a wordplay, uh, and uh, and this now now this gets to my, to the question of what exactly democracy means. What does representation mean? Uh, and what does that have to do with uh, with race? Uh, and and let me let me let me give a historical example to uh, to illustrate what I mean by that. I um I when I first um, 
when I first started this project, I thought it was going to be uh, uh, just focused on the Mexican-American Democrats, this one part of the Democratic Party. Uh, and um, and I, I went to the University of Texas and found their newsletters. And, oh, a big stack of them. And for a researcher, this is, this is just a gold mine. So I, I set up a table with all these newsletters uh, in the library, and I started looking at them. And the next thing I knew, I, you know, I wasn't finding anything. You know, where is the information? Where is the discussion of, of racial representation? Instead, there was there was list after list of uh, political events, of barbecues, of reminders to do this, reminders to do that, and 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 no advocacy in terms of uh, of legislation other than to call attention to their members uh, 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 to their members that certain bills were being considered. Uh, it it was uh, it was a uh, uh, it was a kind of a dull affair for somebody who's looking for uh, for you know racial rhetoric or 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 advocacy racial advocacy uh, because by the oh by the end of the seventies and certainly into the eighties and then into the contemporary period and and that's that was your question now. Mexican Americans have been integrated, uh, and uh, and they've been integrated in terms of leg of policy priorities of their party. They uh, their interests may be different in a larger sense. They've got you know historical uh, uh, historical grievances. They've got uh, greater socioeconomic inequalities. Uh, uh, they're they they lag behind on any number of measures from the majority population, but their issues, uh, uh, their policies are those of the Democratic Party. So, they, so they've been captured, in other words, uh, and this is this is where they operate now. Uh, one of the things that I found was that uh, that even the most ardent, the most left liberal Democrats who would get elected from places like South Texas uh, and other concentrations where they had a large, um, uh, a large community base, uh, found that they had to work within the structure. They had to work with other Democrats who didn't see things their way. They had to work within a context uh, where the Republican Party was on the ascent and, in fact, has become dominant now. Uh, most Mexican Americans are reliable Democratic voters, uh, but until until very recently, um, you know, if you if you look at the last two presidential elections, uh, uh, this this reversed a long time trend. Uh, there was uh, the Republican Party was taking a bigger and bigger bite out of the Mexican American vote, and this was um, this was something uh, this was first articulated in the 1970s by the Republican Party. They said. We don't have to get a majority of their votes, but if we can take 18 to 20 percent of the vote, uh, uh, by God, we can win state statewide elections, and that's that's what they've been doing. So, so Mexican American political struggles within the Democratic Party, and I, I'd like to emphasize the electoral angle on this, are are those uh, are those of the Democratic Party, and they they become one and the same. That that's how they're articulated. The book was just so very interesting. Uh, I learned a lot from it, uh, stuff that I didn't know about Texas, um, stuff that I didn't know about um, sort of larger, um, some of the, the, the changes that have gone on. I think the, the, the writing style, the archives that you use really add to a, a very interesting read. Uh, what's up next from you? Uh, I always like to ask authors if there's a, a, either a next phase of this project. Are you going to be doing 2003 to 2014 on the next project, or are you going to push out in some other directions? What might we have to look forward to? Well, I'm starting a new book project. I'm uh, I'm writing the uh, 
and this is something new, both uh, substantively as well as conceptually. I'm, I'm working on a book on the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund. And this is a, uh, a very different organization for the time uh, that I'm uh, that I'm used to studying. Uh, this is a professional organization. Uh, it uh, it has no members. You can't join the Mexican American Legal Defense and Educational Fund. Uh, they're they're a small group of lawyers. They have perhaps. Uh, 50 to to 85 uh, 85 uh, uh, people working on staff with the organization at any given time. But yet, since the 1960s, and this is another group that had its roots uh, in the 1960s, since the 1960s, it has been one of the most effective legal advocacy groups for Mexican Americans in the country. And one of the things that fascinates me and and this is a new project, I've just started it, uh, and it, and it presents all kinds of research problems, is that it has been very influential in many of the changes that I've just talked about, uh, and it has uh, influenced the course of social movements in, in many ways, but, uh, uh, but it's, uh, its work has been done uh, in the legal system. Oftentimes, uh, oftentimes enabling social movement organizations to be more successful, uh, and at other times, uh, um, because of their focus on equal rights, equal representation, equal application of social programs, and so on and so forth, uh, uh, formal equality, uh, it um, it can sometimes shape the context within within which social movements operate. And there's a fascinating literature on cause lawyering on cause lawyers that I'm that I'm trying I'm trying to apply here. Well, it sounds really interesting. I, I can't wait for it to come out. I hope that you come back when it when it does and until then, uh, we can all read Democratizing Texas Politics: Race Identity and Mexican American Empowerment 1945 to 2002, published this year by University of Texas Press, available widely. Ben, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, thank you so much, Heath.